You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Time now for this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Well, Edward, you're back from the States. Yeah, that's right. I got back a couple of weeks ago and unfortunately I'm going to miss out on the big event, the eclipse that's going to go coast to coast across the US um, in just about a month's time. Yeah, 21st of August. Yeah. So it's, um, it's going to be the most viewed eclipse uh, in history, I imagine. Yeah, it's uh, almost its entirety is across the landmass of uh, the the USA from uh, from starting off on the east coast and uh, going through to the west coast. Um, there's uh, so that I've just returned from California. So California actually was not on the path of totality um, for people on the the west coast of the US. You'd have to go up towards uh, the very northernmost state uh, up into Oregon. Yeah. And it's it's um, eclipses come in cycles called Saros cycles that are uh, 18 years uh, apart, I think. And this, in fact, is the same one as the uh, 1999 eclipse that hit Cornwall, of course. Oh, UK. yeah, that's so right. It's um, the, the, the sister, if you like, or the brother or the sibling of... Uh, uh, of that eclipse at 19 years, sorry, 18 years later. Wow, yeah. So I was actually here in Cardiff watching that eclipse um, from actually remarkably good skies. In Cornwall, they had really not very good weather, except for the moment of totality where there was a little break in the clouds in some parts. Uh, but here we had remarkably good uh, view on the eclipse. And I remember standing on the roof of the physics department when I was an undergraduate um, doing a summer placement here in Cardiff. Yeah. And of course in the States, there's parts of the States, I don't know, Nebraska or whatever, where they're fairly well guaranteed clear skies because uh, it's pretty sunny in parts of... Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so, But I'm sure there will be some eclipse chasers just really waiting in their cars to, to, to uh, look for little holes in the clouds so they can point their, their telescopes and their cameras through. Yeah. Uh, if, if anyone does want to go and see the eclipse, you've probably left it too late because I'm sure all the hotels, campsites, trailer parks are all fully booked. Yeah, up in people's for a... front lawns. Yeah. Um, the, the challenge of an eclipse, of course, is that you have to be in just the right place uh, for to get what we call totality, where the moon fully blocks out uh, the sun. And that, that strip of land that it goes across is not very big. Uh, at all, a few, a few hundred, maybe a thousand miles. Yeah, across. that's right. I think it's a few hundred a few miles. Hundred, yeah. It's really, uh, it's really not very big. Uh, and uh, if you if you think that's tight to get into just the right time at just the right spot, there was something that happened this month, which was an, an occultation of uh, instead of uh, a moon going in front of the sun, uh, it was a tiny Kuiper belt object going in front of a distant star. So the alignment is even more precise. Uh, so this is a special, uh, this Kuiper Belt object, It's in particular it's 2014 MU69, uh, which is an object the New Horizons is going to visit. Yeah, and uh, this is actually the sort of thing that uh, my observatory, Las Cumbres Observatory, used to observe quite a lot of occultations of things in the solar system. Uh, they normally happen very, very quickly, so you need special cameras to be able to look at them uh, because you've got something which is in the solar system, but it's passing in front of something that's very, very distant. So uh, it normally happens very quickly. And to get a reasonable uh, amount of data, you don't just want it to be, you know, three pictures, one before, one during, and one after. You want to get it as it's progressing across uh, the, the distant object. So you need these uh, high frame rate cameras that are particularly if there's amateur astronomers listening, things uh, that are suitable for lucky imaging. And that's really what we would do that for. Now, they had to go into just the right place to do this New Horizons team. They went to um, uh, 
and Argentina to take these images at just the uh, at just the right time. Um, and and the reason for doing this, for focusing on this object and taking this opportunity, is because this is one of the only ways to really, without going to visit these objects, which of course we will in in about a year and a half's time. Um, but this is the only way to really see their get an estimate of their size or a better estimate of their size. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they're way too far away to do what we would normally do to estimate uh, solar system object sizes, which is uh, using radar. And uh, there are various different um, observatories, um, the famous Goldstone Observatory and obviously the very famous Arecibo Observatory. Uh, So normally they would would be uh, bouncing off radar uh, signals and they'd be received by these these targets so that we could not only get an estimate of the size but you can also get a fairly grainy image of uh, these these objects and then for this this object mu69 uh, it's it's so far away it's just a pinprick from from earth so you can't do any of that and it's in particular the time for which it blocks out the background star is gives you the size of it yes that's right um uh, because you you know all of the other things you know it's dynamics and things you know how fast it's moving yes that's right you know how fast it's moving in the path that it's moving on you just don't know how big it is so if you've got those other things you can work out yeah. how big it is uh, and that will help advise for when new horizons gets there uh, in january 2019 which is surprisingly close i remember when when new horizons went past pluto in june 2015 this this next flyby seems years of what well, it was years away. It's, yeah, four. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, getting a lot closer. Um, yeah, that's what happens when you have a busy life, Chris. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to that in 2019 to see a second Kuiper Belt object uh, up close. Uh, in other space mission news, uh, we have Lisa Pathfinder, which was this gravitational wave test bed, which has uh, come to the end of its its mission, about an 18-month mission, and that's been testing technology required for measuring gravitational waves from space. Yeah, and, and it was never going to detect gravitational waves. Right. So, so if anybody was uh, listening to this who was expecting there to be a new gravitational wave discovery, it was never going to do that. It was to test the technology required to build a much bigger thing called LISA, uh, which hopefully will detect gravitational waves. But this is an incredible technological achievement because you have to send a spacecraft up into space and then it's basically got things inside it which are in free fall. So they're totally isolated from the spacecraft that's that's enclosing it. Um, And they wanted to test that they really knew um, that... Uh, the, the the stuff that was inside that was going to do the detecting and the shooting of the lasers um, could be totally separate from the uh, the spacecraft because obviously if it hits the side of the spacecraft it's going to affect whether you can detect a gravitational wave or not. You can't even touch these things. When no, they're going so so if you if you touch this block of metal, it will on a very very small scale start to vibrate, and when you're up in space, it's hard to stop things vibrating so they have to leave these things completely alone so most of the experiment for for over a year was just leaving these two um two lumps of metal that were gold platinum alloy so very expensive lumps yeah. of metal uh probably with... cheaper than if you just send a mouse into space it well... probably would have cost mostly the same amount true yeah um and mice can't measure gravitational waves either of course but these two blocks being kept uh completely isolated from the spacecraft without touching them, trying to isolate them from magnetic fields. Once they've got all that testing done, uh, they can then, um, I guess, uh, the mission is now over, but in the last few weeks they uh, they stress-tested the system to see what it could take, which is a very useful and important part of these kind of missions. Yeah, really very useful. Um, 
it's it's actually a, a a very good testament to all the people that make space missions or the equipment that are sent on space missions that we've been very lucky that many of them have outlived their their expected uh, lifetime and their expected science goals and normally because they're a lot more rugged and this is this is a very good thing that if you do have a dry run as they do in this lisa mission is that you can get some understanding of actually how good the machinery is as well as um trying to achieve your goals you've got a little indication of of what would happen if not only um to extend the lifetime but if something catastrophic happened and if you don't think that catastrophic things can happen in space. The uh, the Kepler mission, which was uh, a spaceship that was designed to look for exoplanets, um, it has to point very accurate, accurately. And it had three gyroscopes that were designed to do that. And one of those broke. And so it couldn't then point and couldn't fulfill its primary mission. Um, and so it's very important to know what you can do if once something goes wrong. And Kepler's actually had a fantastic... Um, science life beyond this this mishap. Mm. So testing these spacecraft is a very uh, important uh, part of, of, of the whole development of our uh, space technology uh, worldwide, I guess. Now, over the last few weeks, there have been a, a flurry of astronomical results coming out uh, from Cardiff, and in fact, from, from elsewhere in the UK, because there was the National Astronomy Meeting uh, held this year up in Hull, the European City of Culture, of course. The National Astronomy Meeting involves a few hundred astronomers all getting together and discussing uh, their year's work, the latest results they've had. I thought it was a, a good opportunity to go and speak to a few of the people from Cardiff who presented results and see what they've been up to. I'm joined by three people who are going to tell us uh, about that now. So uh, Gwen Williams, Makako Matsura and uh, Emily drabek Monda. So welcome all to the programme. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Gwen, I'll, I'll come to you first. You're a, you're a graduate student here in Cardiff researching the uh, the formation of stars and how they form. So what do we understand about the formation of stars and, and how does your research build into that? So one of the main outstanding questions really of, of star formation uh, is how uh, stars themselves form out of their parent molecular clouds. And um, So this is the clouds of gas and dust that all clump together and collapse under gravity to form stars. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The Herschel Space Observatory, where Cardiff has a lot of uh, interest in, uh, really opened up a, a new era of star formation research by revealing the presence of filamentary cloud structures. So these are these are long clouds uh, everywhere in the in the Milky Way, in the interstellar medium, all of the gas and dust that are in between all of the stars in in the galaxy. And we now know that it's these filament structures the densest of which um, are the ones that um, fragment and break up into pockets of dense cold gas called cores, which are going to be the direct progenitors of the stars. That's what the stars are going to form out of. Um, so it's these cores that um, collapse into their own gravity. Okay, so you see a stars. filament, this long sort of tube of gas and dust with, uh, if you look at it in the infrared, which is what the Herschel Space Observatory does, mm. then you see almost like fairy lights dotted along it with these protostars, these cores yeah. that are going to mm -hmm. form. Okay. Exactly. Um, but it's the intermediate steps in, in between the, the breakup of the filament into cores and, and then the collapse of the core into a star. It, there's a question mark over how those intermediate steps uh, happen. Okay. So uh, it's it's this sort of uh, research that I'm, I'm looking at. And one of the problems with astronomy is if you want to look at particular stages of the 
the evolution of a system, be it stars or galaxies or planets, is that we need to look at lots of different things over the course of their life uh, at different stages of their evolution. And if a process happens very, very quickly, we don't see many that happen to be at that point. Is, is that a yes. problem here, that this happens very quickly, so you have to be really lucky to catch it? Uh, it's it's definitely a problem for massive star formation. Which um, So massive stars, they, they are uh, stars which are roughly eight times or greater mass than the sun. And as they are so large, they, they live very fast lives because they, they consume all of their material at an incredible rate. And um, because of this, they're very rare. So to catch their formation mechanism, it, it's, it's difficult, yes. Okay. Uh, and your research, your, your later research is about uh, where some of the, how these filaments collapse into to causing the process that goes on there. So what, what have you found out as, as part of it? Yes, so um, I've used data from two telescopes. One's called the uh, Jansky Very Large Array, which is uh, a series of 27 teles uh, telescopes all working together as one. And uh, another one is the Green Bank Telescope, which is a single dish telescope, which is 100 metres across. And, so an um, impressive telescope in its own right. I yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, using those data sets, um, I've studied the motions of the gas in a particular cloud called SDC-13. Now, STC-13 is, is quite remarkable, really, as it's um, it's a system of four of these filaments all converging on a central hub. So um, it's, a, it's a network of filaments. And uh, studying how the gas moves in the system, you get to understand how, uh, how it could fragment or evolve. Mm. Uh, so looking at um, cold and dense gas in the system, traced by ammonia, uh, we found that um, gas is all moving all along the filaments towards the centre of the hub, which in itself is perhaps expected, that um, the centre of the hub is where most of the mass is, so that's where gravity is going to have the most effect, pulling the gas along from the outskirts of the system towards the centre. And uh, one of the main results that we have come from this data is looking at the internal motions of the gas um, at the positions of the cores that we've identified along the filaments. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that the internal motions peaks at the positions of two-thirds of the cores which have yet to form stars, which are quite aptly called starless cores. Right. Because they don't, they don't have a star yet. Okay. Um, so they're just a dense clump of gas yes, at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Far denser than its, uh, than its surrounding material in the, in the filament which itself is, is dense. What this means is, we interpret it as the accumulation of material from the surrounding filament itself being uh, accreted onto the core, and that it's a very dynamic process of the conversion of gravitational potential energy into kinetic energy, as kinetic energy is directly related to velocity. Okay, so that's as stuff is falling down, it's moving faster, and the thing is just getting energised and everything yes. gets sped up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Okay. And uh, this is completely opposite to things that have been observed before. So this, this is the first time this increase of the velocity is observed at, at these core positions. Like uh, previous work have, have noticed uh, dips in the velocity instead of increases, that the velocity is less than the surrounding filament. So um, perhaps there are um, two populations of cores here. What, mm. what, what we're seeing is that gravity is very important in, in, in this hub system. Uh, in accumulating the material, whereas in other nearby sources, 
that have been observed. They say that gravity is not important and rather it's random motions of the gas which which radiates away the energy instead of um, accumulating it like a like a whirlpool. So this is this is saying if you've got these filaments coming in, uh, it's almost like these these sort of gas highways with with material flowing along towards this this central intersection of all the uh, yes of all the gas. And what what you're seeing is that at particular points where it appears to be moving faster, that's where you see these cores starting to form. And other researchers seen that actually they the other cases it's where it seems to have slowed down and almost stalled. Mm-hmm. That that's where you get these cores formed. So. Yes. Okay, so it's a, it's a new, as you say, a new population of, of these things. And are there, are there more examples that you're going to study, do you think? Well, um, one thing I'm looking at, I'm thinking about doing in the future maybe is to try and see if I can think of a way that would distinguish between these two and maybe think of um, a sample of, mm. of clouds I could I could look at and see if I can distinguish between the two in different clouds or, mm. or things like that. Okay, to see whether there is the there are these two populations and yeah. whether the things are working in different ways, mm-hmm. or whether it's one, it's just a it's not black and white. It's just grey. There's a grey scale, if you like, between different examples, yes. I guess. And okay. of course, um, they might not be starless cores at all. Maybe there is a, a a small protostar right in the center, which we can't see because it's obscured by all of the dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, another area that I need to look into is um, I need to see if there is actual star in in the middle which mm. i can do by uh, tracing um molecules which are associated to the active outflows that these small stars uh, spit out okay. uh, inside the core um and if if they are there then you, you'll be able to see hot spots of of those traces so the investigation continues into yes. exactly <laughs> what is going on well i look forward to hearing back on on uh, the the progress uh, the, the progress on that on that front uh now these these stars, we talk about massive stars. When massive stars come to the ends of their lives, uh, they tend to explode in violent uh, supernova events. And these explosions of stars produce some uh, of the, the most amazing uh, structures we see in the sky: nebulae, so the Crab Nebula uh, and the Cassiopeia. These are objects that astronomers will often study and produce some stunning pictures. But what goes on with the the supernovae and what happens in them is also up for debate. And uh, Mikako, you you research supernovae and their remnants, and you've got results out about one, um, I guess, particularly notable one because it was so recent. Yes, so the target we study is called Supernova 1987A. So that is actually the closest supernova explosion detected in these 400 years. So this is actually very unique opportunities opportunities for astronomers to to study very details how the supernova explosion happens and how they evolve in time to form the nebula, beautiful nebula you can see in other supernova remnant now. So that is the reason we are observing this supernova remnant. It's also very young. It's very young, yes. It's 1987A is come from the the year of detection, so it's actually only 30 years old supernova remnant. So compared, if you think about, you know, this uh, closest supernova remnant, uh, supernova explosion we detect in 400 years, 30 years timescale is very short compared to any kind of supernova remnant. And so the other ones we see are hundreds, thousands, thousands, tens of thousands. Yes, typically, yeah. 
Okay, so so this is very young and it's very close, and that means we can study all sorts of things. What what have you been trying to find out about supernovae and their remnant? So this time, what we found is the molecules called HCO plus and sulfur monoxide. Okay. That's actually very surprising if you consider the energy supernova remnant or supernova make. So these are, these are relatively simple molecules that you expect yeah. to be ripped apart in a violent explosion. Yes. So if you think about energy of the supernova explosion, they are much brighter than the one galaxy at the time of the explosion. So that's how much energetic. So it's one of the most ex, uh, most energetic events you can see in the universe. So of course the energy is very vast, vast and vast. So they can destroy any molecules or maybe dust which can exist in the surrounding and also the stars which explode, died at a supernova. So that's the preconception. So they believe, okay, they maybe uh, destroy everything, then after that, gas is completely ionized. But eventually, we found the gas is cooling down quite quickly after the explosion. So actually, initially, gas, everything, all of the gas were ionized. It's over definitely more than a uh, more than million degrees centigrade at that time, but now in thirty years after the explosion is cooled down to maybe about less than minus two hundred degrees centigrade, so it's enough condition to make molecules and dust now. Okay, and so we found this cold gas when in thirty years it's gone from millions of degrees down to these very very low temperatures. What are the implications of that for what what happens next? The HCO plus. I mean, it's very unique. It's usually found in star-forming regions. So nobody expects we should see this one in supernova remnants before. So the condition what they see in supernova remnants is actually very close to star-forming region, surprisingly. It's very dense and very cold. So that is unexpected, mm. historically. And, th and those are exactly the conditions. So Gwen, those, those cold, dense regions are what you're looking at right that yeah. is really is what you're looking yeah, at exactly yes yeah. so so these these it is a, a very close a link yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay so you found hco plus this this particular molecule and then do you say sulfur monoxide yeah, that's correct sulfur monoxide uh -huh. and also we have seen silicon monoxide and carbon monoxide as well okay. and of course on top we have seen dust enormous amount of dust something like a, well half solar mass of the dust that is i think equivalent of 200 thousand earth mass of dust wow that's a lot of that's a lot of dust yeah. that's a, a lot of planets worth of yeah, dust yeah. and so that's half a half a solar mass worth of dust so half the sun's mass equivalent in in dust plus all this this gas as well how massive was the star that formed this do we know i think when the star died i think i mean we don't know the, how much mass mass the star i mean we don't know exactly that leads to the star formation not that's another question we may ask, but I think that when the star died, it's about, um, I think it's about, believed to be about 14 solar mass. Okay. Oh, yeah, it's lost six solar mass, so it's about 14. Okay, so it started yeah. off at 20. It's lost some mass over the course of its life by shedding its outer layers yeah. in these dust shells. Uh, and then uh, 14 solar mass has exploded, left half a solar mass of the, uh, uh, of the lot dust. of lot of yeah. dust. Dust is made of heavy metals such as iron, silicon, magnesium. So they are all elements uh, which can be formed by this high mass star when the star dies. Now, in study of all of this, when you look, look at the formation of stars, uh, once you form a star out of gas and dust, then you end up end up with a, a bunch of stuff left over. That bunch of stuff, that gas and dust, forms uh, planets. 
and we see eight planets and a whole bunch of moons and comets and asteroids and stuff in our own solar system. And uh, Emily, you're uh, you're researching our solar system, uh, so this is somewhat smaller scale than the formation of stars. But, yes, much smaller scales. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, your later result is about uh, a, a small moon um, that a while ago, well, a decade or so ago, was thought to be just a boring old ball of ice uh, orbiting the planet Saturn. Um, and this little moon, Enceladus, is, uh, well, we know now, not so boring. So what do we know about Enceladus so no, far? No, Enceladus is incredibly cool because um, so the moon is actually surrounded by a thick layer of ice. And below this icy surface is actually uh, an ocean, and we think it's a liquid water ocean. Um, and, you know, so that kind of leads to all sorts of possibilities, what could be in this ocean below, below the icy surface. Um, and you might think originally that it's very difficult, or it would be very difficult to, to study um, what the ocean is made up out of. Um, but actually, we see these plumes uh, of water and gas uh, and various things actually um, being ejected from the surface of this moon. And this process is very similar to geysers that we see here on the Earth. Um, so by looking at what the plumes are made up of and what molecules that we see and things along those lines, we can actually better understand um, what the subsurface conditions of Enceladus is. And so the, these plumes were initially detected by the Cassini spacecraft, yes, uh, exactly. which has been orbiting Saturn for, for over a decade now. Uh, and it, it spotted these plumes of material, which is where sort of the excitement started in some sense. But you're not looking at Cassini data. No, no, I'm not. Cassini's given us lots of really useful information over the years. Um, but Cassini is actually coming to an end at the end of the year. Um, and so the the entire mission is coming to an end. It will actually be driven into Saturn uh, in order to, to have the mission come to its end. Um, and after that, it will be at least a couple of decades before we're, we're able to kind of study these plumes in situ. Um, so in the meantime, what we need to do is use remote observations in order to better understand the plumes um, and the plume environments. Um, and so that's what I've been doing. I've been using ground-based telescopes um, to look in the direction of Enceladus in order to better understand um, what the, the plumes are made up of. So instead of studying them from tens or hundreds of thousands of kilometres away, you're now studying them from uh, over a billion kilometres away. Yeah, um, exactly. So a lot further away. So yes. I guess you don't... And so, um, Cassini has given us amazing images of the plumes jetting into space. We see them in the pictures. Um, there's many, many of those uh, online on the, on the NASA and ESA websites. But you're presumably not resolving these? When we point a telescope here on the Earth in the direction of Enceladus, um, our telescopes won't necessarily have as good of resolution if we were um, directly next to, to the moon itself. Um, and so we pick up pretty much anything... Um, it, in what we would call our telescope beam. Um, and so this is just describing the resolution of our telescope. Um, so actually the plumes, it's not just the plumes jetting out into space, the plumes end up draining into one of Saturn's rings. And this is called the E-ring. The e it's the second outermost ring in orbit around Saturn. Um, so part of what we are detecting is not only the plume material, but also this E-ring material. Okay. So what we've been able to find so far um, is we've actually been able to observe the first ground-based detection of a molecule coming from Enceladus. Um, this molecule is methanol. 
um, which is a molecule that we find here on the Earth. It is an organic molecule. But what we think is happening is that the methanol isn't actually coming from the plumes themselves. It's what's called a secondary product. So once the plumes kind of spray out into space, um, the different um, chemicals that we see in the plumes will recombine in order to create different molecules. And so that's how we think the methanol is being created. So it's a, it's a byproduct. Yes, it's a byproduct, exactly. And we should say, you call it an orga organic molecule. That doesn't mean it's alive in any sense. That just means it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so yes, methanol is um, kind of connected to life here on the Earth, um, but it's not going to be what we would call a biomarker. So it's not an indication of life um, in Enceladus's oceans or anything like that, um, but it could be um, in very specific circumstances. So it would be if there were a load of other conditions met. As yes, well, I guess. exactly. Uh, so you found you've now been able to identify molecules in and around or on and around Enceladus from here on Earth, and that presumably is then important for when Cassini is over if you want to continue studying Enceladus. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, and are there? What, how have you? Is this radio telescopes that you've used to do this? Yes. Yeah, so we we've been using radio telescopes. So they look like giant radio dishes. And the telescope we used is called um, the IRAM thirty meter telescope, and it's located in uh, the Sierra Nevada in Spain. Okay, so that's a radio telescope in Spain. Now, yes. Gwen, Gwen, you mentioned uh, the two telescopes in the U.S. So the Jansky Very Large Array, which is in New Mexico, and mm -hmm. the Green Bank Telescope, which is in. West Virginia? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've got my geography uh, right there. And Makako, you were using a telescope... Called Alma Atacama Large Millimeter and some Millimeter Array. So that is located north Chile of the, one of the place of over 5,000 uh, 5, meter mountains. So that's in the, in the Chilean Andes. So, yeah. so Alma in the Andes, uh, Jansky Very Large Array and the Green Bank Telescope in the, uh, in the US. Uh, and then IRAM in the... Uh, in the in Spain, in the yes. mountains of Spain. So a, a very international collection of telescopes uh, <laughs> we've got there, uh, which is excellent. So I guess I, sh I should ask you, what are you what are you hoping to do? I'll ask all, all of you, what are you hoping to do uh, next? What's the next steps in this? So Gwen, in, in, in terms of your investigation of these um, filaments and cores, what's the next step in, in finding out more? So what I've focused on so far is on how the filaments themselves fragment into the cores but that's not the, the full picture. Like, how do the filaments themselves fragment out of the parent molecular cloud? Um, so uh, the plan next is to use different molecular traces, some, some slightly more diffuse to, to so look some at diff the, different elements that you're going to look yeah, for. Yeah. Um, uh, some uh, carbon monoxide, uh, different isotopes of carbon monoxide, um, to see how the slightly less dense gas of the molecular cloud forms the filaments, perhaps. Okay. Uh, that that would be the aim. Okay, so you're looking at a different stage in the formation of these uh, these filaments, and then uh, mm -hmm. these are an earlier stage in the formation of these filaments and stars. Yes. Okay, and and Mikako, your your results you've you found HCO plus and uh, sulfur monoxide in uh, this supernova 1987A. What's what's the next steps in uh, figuring? This out does it is is it yes. unique? Yes, the next stage uh, stage is try to understand why the well, why there are so many, so many molecules formed there, and of course dust as well. That is one thing. But another part is actually what will happen to their future. 
So these supernovalemonids are very fast moving um, outside, so expanding something like a thousand kilometers per second. That's the outer shell is moving uh, yes, that quickly moving, away. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the speed of one thirtieth of the light speed as far as understood. Yeah. So if that outer shell is moving so fast, it's combined with the surrounding gas eventually. I mean, okay, the universe is really um, nearly vacuum, so we may think there's nothing, but actually some parts are a bit more denser than the other. So if you collide with this denser part, it makes humongous shock. Then the question is, can the stars molecules can survive or not? That's the next question we want to answer. And and this is this is expanding very quickly, but space is big. How long have you got to wait, do you think, before this starts uh, impacting the outer layers, or do we not know? Um, I don't know the exact time scale, but it could happen as early as in five years' time scale, okay. or maybe it takes a little bit longer, but it does happen in quite short time scale. Hopefully within my life. Within <laughs> <laughs> my life, my life. <laughs> So uh, something you're hoping to see uh, in, a, in a few years' time, but definitely Supernova 1987A, uh, one to carry on watching, I guess. Uh, I believe for, for so, yeah. And then, Emily, you, you, you've looked at these molecules uh, on or around Enceladus. What, what's the next step to look for there? Um, so the next step, so, so far we've only been able to find methanol. Um, so we want to obviously get more telescope time to search for other molecules. Um, but also Enceladus kind of huffs and puffs over time. And so what I mean is that sometimes the plumes, there's lots of material coming coming out of the surface of, of Enceladus. Other times there's not so much. Um, so we want to better understand um, the variability of the plumes and the plume environments um, and see if, if there's any um, changes in what the plumes are made up of over time as well okay so that's a, to re again keep studying them yes. to see uh what, what's changing yeah so, exactly um although astronomy sometimes seems to move uh, very very slowly it's a, a few examples there of things that are happening uh, surprisingly quickly perhaps uh well i'm sure at some point we'll have to come back to get an update from uh, some of all of you about uh, that research so uh, gwen williams makako matsura and uh, emily drabek monda thanks very much thank, thank you. you thank you thanks. Well, Edward, uh, nice to have a bunch of results uh, from Cardiff coming out. Yeah, really good. And particularly that um, uh, Gwendolyn Williams is a PhD student. So she's only a student and she had this fantastic result that was picked up not only by newspapers and other scientists, but was picked up by popular magazines like Wired, uh, which is very interested in cutting edge technology. So uh, I think that's a, a phenomenal thing. Uh, n not only for Cardiff, but particularly for Gwen. And um, I'm very pleased about that because Gwen uh, did a project with me when she was an undergraduate. Ah, so she's one of your... Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, she learned everything she knows. Yes. From me. <laughs> Uh, now, there was one other story that came out of Cardiff that uh, we didn't mention in that interview, which was a result uh, from uh, from Jane Greaves here in Cardiff and collaborators elsewhere in the UK. And that was looking... Uh, also using radio telescopes that, that many of those were, but that was looking at possible formation of planets around a neutron star. So the neutron star is this, this uh, stellar remnant, if you like. It's what remains when a star more mass than our sun has got to the end of its life and explosion, a huge explosion called a supernova, uh, leaving behind this dead core, which is you know about the mass of the sun or a bit more and just 20 kilometres across. Very extreme object. Yeah, that seems very weird because normally we think of planets orbiting stars that are like the sun and not dead stars or not stars which have um, 
gone beyond what we think of as a normal star mm. phase. They're actually not dead because they're still radiating, but they're, they're, they're beyond what we think of as star. They There's have no, no fusion yeah. uh, in their cores. So um, uh, it's, it's very interesting, but also it's unsurprising because the very first exoplanets, extrasolar planets that were discovered, were orbiting around a neutron star, and three of them. So and and that was in 1992, I think. A few yeah, years that's before right. the first, the first yeah, stars. Yeah, three years there. before the the very first exoplanet that was found around a conventional star mm-hmm. that, like the sun. Now this latest result is actually looking at uh, a neutron star called uh, uh, Geminga, which is in the constellation of Gemini, uh, and it's a neutron star about 800 light years away uh, from measurements of the 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 neutron star, which was discovered through gamma ray observations rather than radio observations where they're normally discovered. Uh, it looks to be a few hundred thousand years old, so relatively young for a, a neutron star, uh, I guess. That's measured from, from how fast it's, uh, it's spinning. Uh, and what they discovered with these observations is that it appears to maybe have some dust and debris around it uh, as well. And that's what's thought to maybe lead to the formation of planets. Yeah, so this, this dust and debris, um, it could be that the star lived its normal life, exploded, and in that explosion it formed dust, in that supernova explosion formed the dust. Or it could be that um, there's a, a whole load of gas and dust and it forms a star and a solar system and the star lives its life and explodes far quicker than the planets form. And so all the stuff that you would need to form a solar system um, is still going about its business and hasn't quite got there, and this thing goes pop. And so, um, because they're very, very small dust particles, uh, they are largely unaffected by the supernova explosion, and uh, they carry on then uh, with a neutron star, because really, all you need to form a solar system, you don't actually need the star at the very centre, you just need the gravity of the star to to form a, a spinning disk, and for the things to clump together to form planets. So we're not really too sure which of those two scenarios it was. Now, I know that they've used the SCUBA-2 instrument on the James Clark Maxwell telescope, and they're going to use the much higher resolution of the ALMA uh, telescope, this this array in northern Chile, uh, to study this in more detail, maybe tell us uh, uh, possibly where this thing came from, and I guess look for more examples and see whether this is common or not. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So this fits in very nicely with research done by other people in Cardiff, and not only Jane, and uh, into the origin of cosmic dust, where cosmic dust is, is formed, because there seems to be an awful lot of it uh, locked up, some of it locked up in planets, but a lot of it just out there in space and uh, throughout galaxies, not only in our own galaxy, throughout distant galaxies. And uh, where it comes from and exactly how much is produced by different things like exploding stars or or stars like the sun, is still a mystery to astronomers. Well, lots of mysteries to try and solve in the future. Uh, don't forget, you can find uh, previous episodes at pythagastro.uk. Uh, and until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.